Well, we are in the middle of, sort of, yeah, about the middle of, a series in Ecclesiastes. And so we've been walking through the book, and uh, it's been somewhat encouraging. <laughs> I had one guy tell me this week, he said, uh, he said, I don't know why people keep saying it's not encouraging. It's been super encouraging. I, was like, I appreciate you. You're the only guy who said that. So <laughs> anyway, but it's been mostly encouraging, I think. And here's kind of what we're, we're tackling is uh, Ecclesiastes, really the sum of the book is that life is meaningless, that the things of life are meaningless if we look to them for meaning. And so uh, Solomon, being inspired by the Spirit to write this book, writes uh, probably at the end of his life in a state of repentance uh, and, and some encouragement for his son to not follow in his footsteps. Uh, writes this book, and so we have these these things about life, and we've just been going through different topics that we see throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, and uh, really, what we've been saying is, let's find Jesus in the meaningless. All right, so if all this stuff is meaningless, then it must be meant to drive us to something. It's meant to drive us to Christ. So the frustration, the brokenness that we feel in this world, is not meaningless. It's meant to drive us to something that would that would ultimately fulfill, ultimately provide meaning. And so our goal each week is to find Jesus in the midst of meaninglessness. Amen? Yes. Here we go. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We are grateful for your word. We ask now that as we open it that you would speak to us. Uh, Father, we are in trouble if we open your word and we try to decipher it in our own understanding. So we need the Holy Spirit to help us today. We ask that he would teach, that he would guide us. Uh, help these things to rest on our hearts in ways that may challenge us, that may convict us, but in ways that will transform us into a better representation of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm just going to start out asking this question. Are America and social justice fights our great hope? Is, is that our greatest hope in life? Now, I want to start, thank you, I want to start with um, just some confession about me, all right? Because I'm a bit jaded when it comes to politics. I'm a bit jaded when it comes to social justice. Uh, I've tried to understand why I'm this way. I, I just get pretty frustrated by it all. So, I think earlier this year, uh, in the middle of a conversation, I, I figured it out as I found myself getting angry with someone. Um, I think what bothers me the most about politics and social justice and the conversations around those things really is just the hate and the division that it brings, which if you ask me, I think that's what it's all meant for anyway. Uh, but you see it from both sides of a topic. It doesn't matter what the topic is, there's going to be hate, there's going to be um, lots of things said that shouldn't be said. And people who I deeply love, including myself, <laughs> People who I deeply love and admire seem to trade at times Christian values or things we understand about Christianity uh, for conservative talking points. And no, contrary to popular belief, these are not the same thing. Amen. Christian values are not the same thing as conservative talking points. There's a guy by the name of Scott Sauls who had this quote, which I just kind of found some identity in. He said, I am too conservative for liberals and too liberal for conservatives. And then he said that that's every Christian, every Christian who follows the whole Jesus must say that. that that's kind of where you find yourself in 
uh, these topics. And I can understand that because there's been many times where I felt ostracized in both camps of, of those things. Um, so it's not that I don't care at all. <laughs> I just don't care about it all. All right, there's certain things that I just imagine don't matter. Uh, but I do deeply, so kind of know where I stand on some things, I do deeply hope and pray for Roe versus Wade to be overturned. I do deeply believe that marriage is between a man and a woman as designed by God and that any deviation from that is sinful. I do believe that, or I do hope and pray that this country remains free concerning speech and religious practices, whether or not people believe like me or not, doesn't matter. I think freedom counts. Also, I've lived long enough, which isn't so, too long, just celebrated 32 last week. I've lived long enough, though, and seen enough and read enough history to know that none of this really ever changes anything. <laughs> there may be small changes here or there. We may see some ticks in the bell curve. But largely across the board, things just kind of stay the same. So the lack of change throughout history, the hate from one side to the other, all of these things have kind of jaded me for sure. I'm just trying to be honest in that. And if I'm honest about this, my wife knows this, um, I'm, I'm a bit nervous when it comes to even preaching on anything like this. Uh, it comes with a bit of fear because uh, I know so many of you and I love so many of you. And I've also seen your passion at times when it comes to politics and things like social justice. Um, and in all of us, myself included, I've seen those things come in a way that would be contrary to Scripture, the way Scripture says we ought to treat one another. And I think you would too if you thought about it. Um, so I've been there. I've traded blows with people in ways that I regret now, um, not only recently, but also in my past. I'm guilty of this. Um, my hope is that with a better view, a better understanding of who we are in Christ, we can live better. We can bring something to the table that neither side brings to the table. Some hope, some joy, some peace, some confidence in the Lord, who is the only author of real lasting change. Now, so that there's no misunderstanding, I love this country. I consider it a great privilege, a blessing, to be born here, to be raised here. Um, but I do stand here with the outlook that this country and its leaders and its fights that we see uh, in the news so frequently are not my greatest hope in life. My, my greatest hope is in a better king and in a better kingdom. Amen? So, in our text today, Solomon is going to indict both politics and justice. He's going to call them meaningless, vanity. Solomon's discussion from last week about time and seasons and the things we roll through in life, just the, the unending circle of those things, leads into this discussion of politics and justice. So let's just start in chapter 3, verse 16. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 16. He says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. And so if you're taking notes, you can just write this down. Justice is meaningless. 
Solomon looks to the justice system. The reason he's looking to the justice system is because he thinks, as we all kind of think, that if we're going to find some righteousness, if we're going to find justice, then it ought to be in our justice system, right? It ought to be in those things. There ought to be righteousness and justice on display within there, but instead he finds wickedness. He says the, the in there, the innocent are found guilty, the guilty are found innocent. Now, this was a problem in Israel. We see it in Isaiah's, uh, in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 5, verse 23, where he says, Woe to those who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. So, all the way back in Israel, it did not matter whether one was innocent or guilty, but rather how much money they had. Now, I think that things aren't a lot different in modern America. It seems that people get away with murder so long as they can afford the right defense system. And so many of us have outrageously felt and maybe even said before something to the effect of our system often is less about justice and more about having the right lawyer and having the right amount of money. You see people get away with all sorts of things. Me just saying that brings to mind probably one politician. This reality pains us. The reality that the justice system is broken pains us. We see that justice is not had, but often there's a lot of injustice. So why does this pain us? Why, why would this matter to us if it's not anybody that we're close to in any kind of way? Well, I think it matters to us because we're made in the image of a God who is just. That, that all of us, believer or unbeliever, have some sense of what justice ought to look like. I think we wonder... When will God do something about all of this? When is God going to set these things right? Solomon says that there's a set time that God is going to judge both the righteous and the wicked, but we don't know when that's going to be executed. We're not sure when that day is coming, only that God says He will do it. And that, that means it's coming. We can trust that that day will come. We just don't know when. So what we find is that we too must trust God, that He will bring justice one day, complete and full. But it's tough. It's tough, right? Because what we see in the middle of this reality that we have in the middle of our lives is a reality a lot like what Psalm 73 pictures where the believer is tempted to be, to be a skeptic because the wicked prosper while the faithful suffer. And yet we're called to patiently trust God. We see a world where the wicked uh, get away with murder or all sorts of things. And the seemingly faithful uh, endure hardship all their life. I'm reminded of a quote by Randy Alcorn where he said, For Christians, this present life is the closest that we will come to hell. And for unbelievers, this world is the closest that they will come to heaven. For Christians, this world is the closest we'll come to hell. For unbelievers... This world is the closest they'll come to heaven. Romans 1 describes what happens in God towards humanity when we begin to go our own way. It's actually an act of judgment that the wicked are prospering. It's actually an act of judgment, though it's delayed judgment, that they're getting away with things. Romans 1 describes this as God giving them over to their sin. It's a dangerous place to be in because when you're being given over to your sin by God, 
you probably don't realize it. In fact, you probably think, my life's pretty grand right now. Things are really great right now. When we're doing wickedness, 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 getting away with it all the time. And then Solomon just kind of shifts his discussion in verse 18. He changes, and so let's look at what he says here. He, said, he says, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they are themselves but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than what, that a man should rejoice in his work. For that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? And here's the point of what he's saying here in verses 18 through 22. He's saying, we want justice, right? We're all crying out for justice. But what about our part in injustices? That's really our problem, right? You see, God cannot hold evil accountable without holding us accountable for our part in it. So, we're far slower to recognize evil in ourselves, though. What happens is when someone wrongs us, we want justice. But when we wrong someone else, we cry out for mercy. Right? We want to hold someone else to the full extent of the law, but when it comes to our wrongs, we're like, hey, can't we overlook it this time? And even though we cry out for justice, I don't think that we exactly want justice. At least not for ourselves. We want it for others. I think it leads us to be at least glad that the Lord doesn't set evil straight immediately. That if the wages of sin are death and He set sin right immediately, we would have to die immediately. None of us would be here right now. So God tests us to show that us that we are beast in the way that we treat one another, in the way that we react. In Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11, Solomon writes there, Because the sentence against a criminal act is not carried out quickly, the heart of people is filled with the desire to commit crimes. Isn't that interesting? Because a criminal act is not acted on or not set right quickly, we look at that as broken humans and we say, hey, maybe I could get away with something like that. Maybe I could get away with whatever. Maybe I could do this or that. His patience, God's patience, reveals to us our evil and our need for a Savior. Reveals to us how broken we are. Now in verses 21 through 22, he raises some gigantic questions. He says, I'll read it again, Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? This is not him asking, do all dogs go to heaven? Alright? Kind of sounds like it, but that's not what it is. He says, so I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Well, all he's getting at here is that our knowledge of what happens to the human spirit is limited. Now, praise God, we're on the back side of some of this truth. We're in the, the already. We've seen Jesus come and die and return to heaven. And so in the New Testament, we have Scripture that reveals to us what happens 
But even in what we do know, we're still very limited in our understanding of what happens at death. Solomon simply wants to expose this fact. He's not really commenting on it. He's just saying that as a way of showing that we're not much different than beasts, who can really know? And so he just concludes with this. Because of this, we should seize every opportunity. Live life to the fullest. Now, of course, we know the full life is lived according to God's commands, not contrary to them, not against God's commands, but according to God's commands. Because life is a gift from God and He knows best. Let's keep reading in chapter 4, verse 1. He said, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Let's skip down to verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who moved about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. If you're keeping notes, you can write down politics meaningless. He starts with this observation of the oppressed. He says they cry, no one is there to dry their tears, they can't be comforted, comforted, and people are doing cruel things to one another and no one can stop it. Why? Well, he observes that the power to comfort, the power to make such change, the power to stop this, is actually on the side of those who are oppressing. So they do as they please. So he just concludes that all of this is meaningless. The ones who are elected to uphold justice and do good end up being the oppressors. I think what he's getting at is that power corrupts. So even if someone sees the evil and gets involved in politics to try to set things right or gets involved in that political sphere, they have to compromise to get power. Once they've compromised, they've been corrupted and nothing really changes. The powerful can do what they want to the weak and no one can stand up for the weak whether it's an unborn child or a slave-traded little girl. There are countless stories all over the world of police officers who were paid off by sex traffickers to look away. It seems hopeless. And maybe you object, well, that's not true. Much can be done to help the oppressed. Sure, people can help, but what Solomon is, the point he's making is that there's no net gain. You're not going to end oppression altogether. This is part of life under the sun. This is part of post-fall world. But certainly we should work for the good of others, right? We know that this is our Christian duty. It's near to God's heart and talked about repeatedly throughout the Bible. But without Christ, it will not, nothing will be completely changed. And certainly without showing people Christ and them being awakened to turn to Christ, nothing has changed for their eternity. I mean, we may end world hunger, but if we haven't shown people the true bread of life, then we've not done them much good. Right? Sure, they eat here and their bellies are full, but eternity in hell is far worse than starving with Christ. 
Ecclesiastes is just meant to point this out to us. He's just making observation. As one commentator said about this, he said, we live in a world where it's in vogue to end injustice. This is what people are after. This is their thing. You put red X's on your hand, but at the same time, powers are corrupt. And even those powers are using mercy, using gifts, money, for their own benefit instead of ending what they say they're about ending. It ensures a culture of dependency is all it does. And the painful reality in this drives Solomon to say that it's better to be dead or it's better to have never been born because the dead have to, don't have to endure the evil anymore. Sure, but they did experience it. At least the unborn never even have to experience the reality. He's saying death even is better than life. And then in verses 13 through 16, he kind of jumps back into the political realm where we see a poor, wise youth replaces an old, foolish king. Now, this is kind of backwards. Usually youth is associated with foolishness, but not here. Here we see a king who won't listen to advice, which is foolish. And so the youth then, though, takes his spot only to be replaced by another and him by another, and the cycle never ends. What he's getting at is that even politics, even rulers, even all of these things are transient. They're ever-changing. You can't count on them to bring anything. So I think you can look at America, you can look at presidential candidates who run simply on, they get elected just simply saying, I'm going to undo whatever the predecessor had done. Right? This is how they get elected. And so they're elected, and we cheer, and then four or eight years later, someone else is elected promising the exact opposite, to undo everything that they had just done. And so it's just this, this cycle that we all get to experience. No matter how good the politician may be, people are fickle. They swap from one to the next, right? So that nothing lasts forever, not even political reform. It gets upended and uprooted constantly, changed all the time. That's why we have 17 billion laws. They get rid of one leader and they'll get rid of the next. Five, eight, Ecclesiastes 5.8 touches on this meaninglessness of this too. He says, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher official. And there are yet higher ones over them. He's saying we shouldn't be amazed by oppression. We shouldn't be amazed by injustice. We shouldn't be amazed by corruption because the system makes it predictable. The system actually makes it possible. The system is set up, supposed to be, for checks and balances, but instead it makes oppression possible all the way up through the ranks because what happens is the citizen who wants reform or the citizen who wants justice or the citizen who wants things to be set right is just endlessly deflected from one layer to the next. Right? You see this when you call to argue about your cell phone bill. I can't help you. You'll have to speak to my manager. You speak to the manager, I can't help you. You'll have to speak to the regional manager. Regional manager, I can't help you. Right? It's just an endless cycle. Cronyism becomes the inevitable result of politics. You scratch my back, I will Scratch yours. You help me pass this bill, and I'll make sure that your cousin gets the, the road work for the city. To sum it all up, 
There is injustice in the world. People are given authority to restrain evil and uphold good, but power corrupts, so people often use their authority for their own good, harming others in the process. And as a result, you become jaded like me. The problem is authority is necessary. We need authority for our own good. We don't rebel against authority. In fact, Romans 14 would tell us that we need to listen to authority. That authority has been set by God. Kings and rulers have been chosen by God to be in the place that they're in. Whether evil or not, He's using them to accomplish His purpose. He's sovereign. Praise God. It's our hope all the time. So the next president's not my greatest hope. The president now is not my greatest hope. King Jesus is my greatest hope. Power corrupts, so people use their authority for their own good. They harm others. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, I think that the corruption of these things and the injustices that we see in the world today drive us to hope in a better king and a better kingdom. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. Our hope is in a better king and in a better kingdom. We've seen the exasperation of Solomon. Heck, we, we feel it ourselves. And what's the answer? It's not a churchy answer. It's, it's the truth. Our answer is Jesus Christ. He's, he's our hope. The, the problem of leaders who oppress or who corrupt rather than help cries out for a king who doesn't corrupt and doesn't oppress. A king who is greater. And our longing for righteous political leaders, which is probably an oxymoron, who set things right, is really and truly, deeply, a longing for King Jesus. It's a longing for a perfect King. In His kingdom, there is no oppression. There is no inequality. And the beauty of this is we get to see this in a glimpse within the local church. Our church is a small glimpse of this because we're an outpost of the kingdom. We're a small body of believers amid a massively large body of believers all across the world. And guess what? There are millions more meeting right now today just like we are who love the Lord. And what we see in many of these places is that there is no oppression. There is no inequality that all of us, because we're an outpost of the kingdom, all of us are from different walks of life, yet we get to sit down at the same table and partake because of Christ. Any of my brokenness, any of my bondage, any of my whatever that I may have experienced in my life is now transformed because of Christ and I now belong to a body of believers. What this means is that for some of you, you come from a family that wasn't ever really a family at all. And now you get to experience true brothers and sisters in the Lord. For some of us, you come through lots of oppression. Maybe life's been extremely hard on you. And the body gets to rally around you and try to help you in those times. For some of us, life's been great. The Lord has saw fit to bless us in ways that He hasn't others. 
And so we get to use those things to further his kingdom, to contribute to the family. I, I love the small glimpse that we get here at New Life Community Church of what the kingdom looks like. But I do long for the day when Jesus finally forever establishes his kingdom, when all things are set right. You see, Jesus didn't die and decay into the dust. And by faith in him, what we see in the New Testament is that you too will be raised to life from the dead on the day of his return also. Those who are in Christ will live forever, not as bodiless souls that fly away, but rather in glorified bodies where there is no pain, there is no more sorrow, there is no more death. There will be a final judgment where the wicked and the righteous will be judged. The wicked will be raised to eternal punishment and the righteous will be raised in Christ to eternal life. All things will be set right. And Ecclesiastes makes this abundantly clear in 11 uh, chapter 11, verse 9, we read this. He says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, all the things you do, God will bring you into judgment. And then he encourages us in chapter 12, where that may sound a little discouraging, he brings this to the table. In verse 12, or sorry, verses 13 and 14, he says, The end of the matter, all of this has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Everything we do will be brought to judgment. Judgment is not going to be about who did you vote for. What social justice box did you stand up on? But it will be about what did you do with Jesus? What did you do with your knowledge of Christ? And if you're a believer, how did that affect the way you live? Specifically, can outsiders look at you and know that you belong to Christ because of the way you love people? Jesus says that's the mark of us. That's the mark of Christians. The world will know we're His followers because of the way we love one another. There's no president, there's no social justice soapbox worth defending so much so that I belittle a person, ever. It's not worth it. It's just not. I don't have to belittle people to talk about my point. I don't have to share a Facebook post because I thought it was funny or because I thought it made a point when it's belittling someone. I see all that stuff come across my feed too. I don't have to share it. You don't see me share it. We've got to remember that we live for Christ. That we live for a King who reigns forever and that there's a kingdom He's working to establish and He wants to use you to do it. We have to remember that. As soon as we don't, we become jerks. And the world doesn't give a rip about what you have to say about Christ anymore. That doesn't mean that we don't stand for anything, right? We are told over and over throughout the New Testament, speak the truth in love. Be full of grace and truth. But you know that truth cannot be graceful and it cannot be loving at times? There is a way to share the truth in love. There's a way to speak the truth with grace. 
pointing people to a better king and to a better kingdom. God brought judgment on Jesus. In the middle of human history, God brings judgment on His own Son. It's not final judgment. There will be a final judgment. But what this judgment did was it made a way for people to be reunited with God. A God that we have rebelled against. A God that we may have said we love, but we did not love. A God that we ran from. A God that we used fig leaves to try to hide ourselves from. So He brings His wrath down on His Son so that we could be saved. So that we could know a better King. Be a part of a better kingdom. And so by repentance and faith, a turning from your life now and turning to faith in Jesus, which means that we follow Him. James says even the demons say they believe and shudder at the name of Christ. So there's something more than just saying I believe. It's actually following. My actions, my love for others is usually a really good indication of whether or not I really believe in Jesus or not. In fact, 1 John would say that if you do not love others, you do not love God. That's a hard one. So there must be some transformation that comes from following the Lord. He transforms us. He changes us. You see, Jesus endured screwed up politicians that sentenced Him to death. Jesus endured the greatest injustice the world has ever seen. A perfectly innocent, a perfect man being convicted and killed for nothing other than it was God's plan to save us. And God, Peter, again, I'll remind you of Peter in Acts, his sermon, he says that God used those unrighteous men to crucify His Son. Even that act of evil was used to accomplish the purposes of God. Jesus endures it. He endures those politicians. He endures the greatest injustice ever so that He could ultimately end those things forever. He could establish His kingdom and reign forever. Amen? Amen. That's all I've got for you. You can stand to your feet.